Thanks so much for listening to another podcast episode of Complex Identities. This is your host, Juan Marcos Bejarana Gutierrez. In the previous episode, we started to lay the groundwork for us to consider groups that lay in the middle of the Jewish and Christian continuum. And we talked about certain ones very briefly. We mentioned uh, the Ebionites, uh, the Nazarenes, for example, etc. And we talked about the possibility that some of them may have been linked to the first century and also counter views, which uh, suggest that they didn't necessarily have links to the community of Jerusalem, for example. Now, those that argue against a link between these groups that we find mentioned in the second, third, fourth centuries, etc., um, and the connections to the first century of Jerusalem, often object based upon differing perspectives that these groups seem to have held with respect to several theological questions. For example, their views on the preexistence of Jesus, um, the virgin birth, uh, among other issues, including their outlook towards Paul, seem to have been quite varied and often stood counter to the emerging uh, Christian movement, at least in what we characterize as its orthodox expression today. Now, I would question that as a historian because it presumes that the first century Jesus movement maintained a certain level of unity and had complete agreement on these issues. So, for example, if we look at the question of the virgin birth, that these middle groups in the you know, second, third, fourth centuries seem to have uh, often uh, highlighted as a major difference between themselves and other Christian groups, if we look at the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, it's evident that this is an extremely important aspect of their uh, of the, the, the faith or the theology that they're conveying to their readers. In contrast, if you look at the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John or even the Pauline epistles, the virgin birth or the, the notion of the virgin birth doesn't even seem to appear at all. And so I think that this is extremely important because, um, of course, we could ask, does this mean that these authors or communities rejected this view? And Not necessarily. But neither does it mean that they considered it a critical aspect of their faith or the message that they were conveying, at least in writing. Uh, it was not, at its extreme, even part necessarily of their tradition. And perhaps one could argue that the idea was sufficiently widespread, that there were no need uh, on the part of the authors to mention it. But I think it's important to note that rarely do authors leave out ideas they consider critical to the case or message that they are communicating. And I think that this is something that we have to keep in mind. And the reason that I mention that is because, again, if we're looking at these groups that existed in the middle of the continuum between Jewish and Christian expressions as we identify them today, and they held certain views, we sort of try to understand, uh, or we should try to understand why they may have held these particular perspectives. And, in, and if we look at the first century, maybe that's actually the, the basis for these ideas uh, to have been present or to have been rejected. Now, here, I think it's important to uh, point to Rabbi Jacob Neusner. He has a very famous quote. Um, I've concluded it in some of the books that I've written. And he says the following. He says, If we insist that we speak not of Judaism, but of Judaisms, does that not mean we also have to speak uh, not of Christianity, but of Christianities? Indeed, it does, and proves our point. People familiar with the rich diversity of Christianity today and throughout the history of the Christian faith will find routine the allegation that just as history has yielded its diverse Christianities, in some ways autonomous and in some connected, 
in some continuous, so history testifies to more than one Judaism. Why then does everyone understand that there is not now and never was a single Christianity? And I think that this is extremely important because if we're going to apply a certain critique historically to Judaism and to views of a monolithic Jewish expression in the Second Temple period, it's, it's important intellectually to apply the same standards to the early Christian movement. And as we've, as we've noted before, uh, the documents of the New Testament seem to reflect different influences. And if this is the case, it, it shouldn't be shocking, certainly on a historical level. I think the concern is more on a theological level for people who hold uh, a certain viewpoint. Now, contemporary readers, especially individuals who are practicing Christians, often assume that Paul's epistles imply an overarching, uh, what I would call a specific agreement on various theological issues. What Paul embraced must necessarily have reflected the views of other first century followers of Jesus. This is the standard view, I would say, among most individuals that I meet. His writings, however, I believe reveal multiple groups and personalities that were in play in the early Jesus movement. Still, even if we were to minimize the divisions as conflicts of character or personality, the combative tones that Paul takes with groups from the quote-unquote circumcision I believe, are evident in his letter, and that gives us an indication of these significant differences between these different groups. Now, the volume of his writings cannot, I believe, dismiss the existence of four very different Gospels, and more importantly, the communities that authored them. While the Synoptic Gospels, for example, are, are certainly similar to each other, and obviously academics look at uh, the Gospel of Mark as being sort of the source text for the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, um, the differences are sufficient, I believe, to merit consideration of uh, what Geza Ramesh would talk about, the different faces or the different visions of, of Jesus. There are many other examples that I could point to. Um, I think if you look at, for example, the Epistle of James, um, which of course is not one of the Gospels, but if nothing else, it highlights a very different understanding of the Logos uh, than John, the Gospel of John, or Paul espoused. And it stands out like an aberration, we might even call it, or anomaly, in the middle of a purported congruity of the other works. And of course, as fascinating as these topics are, our, our focus really lies in other places. But the reason that I mention that again is because we want to look at these groups that stand in the middle and try to understand where they're coming from. It's not about proving one group to be correct or another group to have had a theology that wasn't reflective of the first century, but to understand that these things were in flux and that the groups that we find that are important for us to understand the dividing line, if you will, between emerging rabbinic Judaism as we know it and uh, Christianity, Orthodox Christianity as we know it, uh, these groups are sort of in the middle and they were connected to different streams of idea, ideas. And sometimes they may have actually pulled in ideas that were contemporary from either one of these ends, or they may have been influenced from earlier uh, perspectives uh, that date back to the first century. And I think that's really what I'm trying to communicate is we have to look at these groups and think about why they have these very unique perspectives, because what we'll find is on the one hand, some of these groups maintained uh, very rabbinic perspectives on, shall we say, the transmission of the Torah. 
very similar to the, the Torah Shabal Peh, uh, the, the, the transmission of the oral Torah. And yet at the same time, they hold very, very different views than the rabbis would have held with respect to, to other issues. So again, we're looking at the sources and why these groups uh, that we will eventually analyze may have come up with these very unique uh, theological systems.